Section 15 of Tales of the Uneasy by Violet Hunt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Lisa Reichert. The Tiger Skin, Part 4. He had no authority, except, strange to say, as far as Phyllis was concerned, and though Phyllis's physical upbringing left nothing to be desired, he considered her mental education in some ways to be defective. Adelaide placed no obstacle whatever to his realization of certain views he had formulated and insisted on to the verge of tediousness with regard to the moral standards to be inculcated in a young growing girl. She listened patiently while he exposed these theories, and her thin lips wore something more nearly approaching to a smile at these times than any other, while her husband thus took a practical interest in the future of her daughter. He reasoned broadly and generally. He could not lay his whole mind before the wife of Phyllis's father, for that father counted, and not, in Ensor's idea, favorably. Phyllis had certain strongly marked tendencies which he deplored, and which he conceived her to derive from the parent he did not know. She had undoubtedly a strain of the coarse and the callous. Her father had probably had these characteristics more strongly developed. She had also some disagreeable qualities that he distinguished in and traced from Adelaide, and that careful training might cross and deny and finally eradicate. She was sly, she was morbid, she was headstrong and reckless of the claims of others. So, acting with Adelaide's authority, delegated to him unquestioningly, he kept a strict watch and supervision on the books she read and the conversations she heard or took part in. He did not countenance her frequent visits to the kitchen and her odd, indecent familiarity with Gertrude the cook. He had asked his wife if he might not prohibit the child from entering the servants' quarters altogether and seal the red baize door that led to them against her use. He would like to forbid all entrance and egress by it and force her to give her word of honour that she would observe the prohibition. She may give it, but she won't keep it said Adelaide, lazily. You can't wonder. She's fond of Gertrude because she gives her tidbits. And Phyllis is greedy, poor darling. And then, she looked up in his face, there's your beloved Mary. She's about, and you must remember the two were brought up together. They were like foster sisters before you came. You altered everything, and now I am going to have your child. He stooped and kissed her, full of premature paternal emotion. Adelaide was supposed to be not quite so well today. She was lying on the famous tiger-skin that he had given her, and which she had spread over a low, wide couch in the hall. She chose to lie on it always so that the brute's savage head was close to her own. Loving and akin, the live Adelaide and the dead beast he had given her both reeked of each other. There was all the hot suggestion of the jungle, of careless natural savagery in the juxtaposition of the tiger's snarling teeth, Adelaide's dusky eyes, and the spots and splashes of black that showed on each side of her spare form, like caked, dried blood upon the gold. It was his wife's boast that her beautiful figure was hardly altered by her present condition, and the shocking cruelty to the unborn implied in this attainment of an unnatural shapeliness was lost on the simple fellow who was so soon to be a father. "'Our child,' he said, kissing her again passionately, 
is the thing that matters. Then the recollection of that other child went through, pierced his heart like an arrow. He rose from his knees. All the blood in his body came into his face. He stood looking down at the woman who had returned the passion of his caress with all the force of which she was at present capable. A large patch on the tiger skin, a zebra mark bitten in, zigzagging across the yellow fur focused his eyes. Adelaide, he prayed softly, could we not take Mary back into the house again? No, Adelaide said. She spoke quite quietly, too, but Ensor knew her. A storm was coming. Then, he said pleadingly, could she not be sent away for a bit, or, his immense struggle betrayed itself in his voice, for good? You cannot interfere with Gertrude's business, came plumb and sharp from Adelaide. If Gertrude likes to leave me, she can, of course, take her child away with her. But I cannot do without Gertrude, and Gertrude will never leave me. Ask her. She turned away and laid her cheek against the flat head of the tiger. And I was so happy, she wailed in bitter accents. He knelt down again. Her breath came quick. He feared for her. It is no use, she said. You have spoilt it all, and all for the sake of a dirty, misbegotten little wretch whose own mother can't stand her and beats and neglects her. I don't blame Gertrude. Don't you understand, Wald? Mary is one of the wrecklings. One of nature's faults that ought to have been smothered at birth. I wish I had. I wish somebody had. My father would have put her away fast enough if I had asked him. Only like a fool, I was kind to Gertrude, and saw her through with it. But I have come to hate the very sight of the child. And you, you, to come snivelling to me about her. You! She laughed. Her passion was spent. She looked him, her husband, up and down contemptuously. He murmured, Don't, don't excite yourself. I won't, she said squarely, turning her face round to the wall. I'm better now. I won't let you hurt me. I'll even discuss the unwholesome brat, if you like. That'll show you I don't care. Get on, talk quietly, and tell me what's wrong about Mary's upbringing. You are very good, Ensor murmured. Are you sure it won't upset you? No, I tell you. She sat up and faced him. She pulled a basket of needlework toward her and busied herself with it. Her hands did not shake. Ensor admired her. After all, she had no nerves, and he might as well say his say about the child. Get better terms of existence for her and be done with the subject. He made up his mind he would not say much. He would not descend to particulars of her ill-treatment unless Adelaide asked for them. He began gently. I do think, don't you, that when all's said and done, Mary's young and even a servant's child ought to have some joy of its life. Mary oughtn't to be made to slave like a grown-up. Hang it all, a simple child should lightly draw its breath, not to the tune of housework and floor-scrubbing. The sight of the poor little kid carrying those heavy pails about makes me quite sick. I should like to tell you what I saw yesterday. Gertrude must be an unnatural mother. Well, speak out. What did you see? Adelaide asked sharply. You were out driving. Mary was standing by one of the high windows in the hall. She'd no business to be there, 
Suppose a caller came. No callers come. Why don't they, by the way? I hate people. I've snubbed them all. They daren't show their noses here. Go on. What was your paragon doing in the hall? She was eating something out of an enamel tin platter, such as you feed dogs in, laid out on the sill. The platter was not over clean, and I don't know what the mess was, but it looked most unappetizing, and she seemed to be, yes, actually picking something, something disgusting, something alive out of it. Pa, you sicken me, Adelaide screamed. Ensor went on relentlessly, now that he was wound up. I put my hand on her little scrubby head with that faded knot of red ribbon on the crown. I wonder you can touch it. Don't touch me. And I told her not to eat the nasty stuff, and what was it? She said it was bits Gertrude cut off the toast before it went in the dining room, the same as the dog had. It looked days old, quite mouldy. I shouldn't like to give such a mess to my dog. I can only account for it as a morbid taste of the young growing child, and I bade her throw it away and not eat between meals. It shows the shocking state of health she's in, and she's morbidly inventive, for then she said, What did she say? That it was her breakfast. Nonsense, I said, but she stuck to it. She seemed cowed, brutalized, but she stuck to it. I say, Adelaide, I know you aren't very fit just now, but oughtn't you to make some inquiries? Does Gertrude beat her or ill-treat her? I hear sounds of a morning sometimes, not so much lately since you've been seedy, but they freeze my blood until I realize that it's the dog getting a licking. Oh, Adelaide, reassure me. Don't you see a man can't stand the suspicion of such a thing in his house? A helpless child. The drops of sweat stood on his forehead. Adelaide spoke, as it were, a prepared speech, which it was now time to make. Your house! she said. It was hers, and the man winced. She continued, raising herself a little. Look here! Mary's a liar as well as a pig. You've owned it. Morbid. Is that all? I say a filthy, beastly liar. And, Wald, I'm going to bear your child. And if you want to have a healthy one, born alive, you haven't had much luck with children, so you say, you had better not worry me. Let me have this chance. I'll never try again. I shall kill myself if this one does not come off. Suppose you be wise in time and leave off meddling in my domestic concerns and go and attend to your own. You've a meeting of the library committee in Beverly at three. It's full time. She glanced composedly at the watch that lay on her breast and lay down again as if it were a duty. He went about his business, trying to calm down in the quiet operation of the natural round and the mild form of civic functions that filled his days. Adelaide was right. An important meeting of the library committee was on for today, at which he had announced his intention of speaking, for the subject interested him personally. It was a question of morals, as applied to the feast of contemporary literature spread before the youth of Beverly and Wayton. Ensor's contention was that, as young girls formed the main contingent of the readers of books in all provincial towns, it behoved far-seeing and right-minded city councillors to see that no works pernicious in quality or deleterious in tone should be delivered over to their private consumption. 
their elders with a taste for life spiced and otherwise should purchase outright the literature their souls loved and leave the shelves of chance to works of limpid purity and unimpeachable if dreary moral tone the library committee was composed of enlightened men and women for it had been founded by an exceedingly busy and fussy mrs marrable a bit of a socialist as she called herself she was at any rate a person professedly open to all the new ideas the committee were a little afraid of her and had come to look to ensor the shy silent embodiment of conservative almost retrograde feeling in their midst to oppose her he generally began his sentences i know i'm a bit old-fashioned this was a capital counterblast to mrs marrable and her bit of socialism they found him invaluable a sort of slipper on the wheels of frenzied progress and mrs marrable was not easily gainsaid she was a relation of the bishop's cousin and had lived in beverly for years in a big red house where she entertained saturday to monday parties from london she had no daughters another influential member canon st ledger unmarried and living in the best house in the close was a friend of ensor's though he had not asked him to come in so much lately indeed looking round the green baize-covered table where all the committee found themselves at last seated it occurred to ensor that he had not shaken hands with a single one of his confreres since the last meeting and that was a month ago for that reason he supposed they seemed strange to him although they were all or nearly all people with whom he had been desired to take pot-luck on any occasion lunch or dinner when he had ridden in from high walls on his bicycle and found he had put it too late to get back all except mrs marrable with whom for political and temperamental reasons he had always cared to have very little to do while the committee dealt with some purely financial and business matters which called for no more attention from the members of the committee than was implied in passing a vote of confidence or holding up hands for a resolution ensor wrought himself up into a strange state of nervous apprehension it might have been mere perverse fancy but as a matter of fact not one of these people had spoken to him since they sat down or recognized his presence except by a nod of salutation such as the barest courtesy demanded the attitude of each several person could be accounted for separately so and so had come in late such a one had too many irons in the fire to be able to spare a word till the meeting was over but still there it was the indefinable uneasiness the disagreeable insinuating point that morbid imaginings could establish no one had actually addressed a word to him he brooded over this he was tired overwrought and annoyed for the child phyllis had shown a sad racial cloven foot to-day he was afraid she was not going to turn out so well as he could have wished by and by other business being disposed of the committee were invited to deal with the question of detailed selection of books for the library it was a subject on which ensor was keenly interested and here he had so much to say that he forgot his preoccupation and did not allow his natural shyness to interfere with the expression of his opinion he was strongly against the determination of mrs marrable to permit nay to encourage the introduction of a certain novel the work of one of her literary confreres into the list of the library ensor had had the book sent him from london so as to acquaint himself with its supposed nature he had carefully kept it out of the way of his womankind 
until having thoroughly digested it he threw it into the fire yet this book was to be placed on the shelves of the library to which adelaide subscribed and a copy of it would be sure to find its way to high walls he could not bear the idea of such a girl as phyllis eager sensuous full of strong exuberant readily awakened sex instincts sucking in the unhealthy unnecessary knowledge presented so cleverly by this book and it seemed to his hypochondriacal imaginings that the tendency of the rest of the committee was to override his objections per se he grew tremendously excited and the committee wondered to see the usually still and discreet man who had married the lady they called the terrible mrs dibbon make such a violent exhibition of himself i have a nearly grown-up daughter as you all know so he ended his speech and for the moment he felt every inch a father well let me tell you that i had rather see her lying dead at my feet then realize that she was taking into her pure mind anything so poisonous so pernicious so destructive of all moral health as the work in question i would rather see her starved neglected maimed even than ruined mentally by such murderous nourishment he stopped he felt that the sense of the meeting was not with him the silence that swallowed up the last word was hard and disapproving the chairman canon st ledger drubbing on his desk with a pencil mrs marrable divesting herself of her feather boa with the air of one throwing down the gauntlet and tilting forward her chair rose do i understand she said speaking with privileged indistinctness but ensor heard her for all that do i understand from mr ensor's eloquent speech that he cares to throw his shield merely over a member of his own immediate family what about the stranger within his gates and i have yet to learn that spiritual injury and moral oppression are the only enemies worth combating talk of mental starvation indeed mental there are worse things than mental starvation there are blows she appeared to become hysterical and quite incoherent such hypocrisy such disgusting hypocrisy i never heard of let him look to his own house i say let him set his own house in order before we put the society on to him mrs marrable i must beg you to observe this language is impermissible here canon st ledger said avoiding ensor's eye and the deprecating gestures he automatically made i must call upon you to apologize to me ensor said white to his lips oh yes i'll apologize to the committee said the lady and they'll accept my apology they all know what i mean but in the interest of humanity it is time some steps were taken and i'll take them she folded her boa tightly round her neck and passed out canon st ledger swiftly put the retention or refusal of the book in question to the vote and closed the meeting ensor dazed his eyes blurred with unaccustomed passion walked away like a condemned man condemned for a crime of which he was unwitting he rode studiously home meditating on these things to the point of falling off his bicycle he was stunned with the impact of the undeserved disagreeable and knew not what to think or whom to ask for an explanation and when he got home he found real trouble awaiting him 
phyllis who had been ailing rather unaccountably for some time past had shown definite symptoms of illness during his absence the little local country doctor but quite good had been sent for and had been and gone he had pronounced the child's uneasiness to be due to a mild attack of typhoid fever so adelaide afoot her eyes alight with excitement told the sluggish depressed man who dismounted from his bicycle at the door where she came to meet him have something wald you look pale that meddling brute of a doctor has gone and ordered a nurse all off his own bat she fretfully informed him leading the way into the drawing-room and closing the door i was so angry with him when i heard what he had done of course i should have nursed her myself the woman is here now so we must make the best of it ensor was secretly of opinion that dr hodgson was right and that the state of adelaide's nerves would have made her an indifferent nurse he however contented himself with remarking that neither himself nor dr hodgson would approve of her sitting up at night but i shall have to as it is no nurse can do both and wald i do so detest strangers coming into the house they go prying about making up all sorts of absurd conclusions and telling the ass of a doctor everything an expression of indefinable apprehension crossed her peevish face and her husband was touched taking it as he did as indicating the state of nervous tension she was in phyllis's illness her own condition he took her limp hand and kissed it my poor adelaide what have you to fear there's nothing wrong for him to find out i don't quite approve of the status of mary in the house but after all that's the cook's affair not ours by the way he was going to tell her something of mrs marrable's insinuations but concluded he had better not mention the matter at this juncture he merely asked abruptly where is mary i haven't seen her about for the last few days gertrude has sent her away to some friends at colour coats i believe she asked me if i could spare her and of course you did kind girl said ensor oh yes the work she does isn't worth thinking about i told gertrude we should never make a servant of her good-bye i must go to phyllis i want to keep an eye on that nurse i didn't like her face a mischief-maker if ever there was one adelaide was gone and ensor fell a-thinking on the painful scene of to-day he was obsessed now that it was over by the recollection of a fluid and retreating committee he saw black coats and the grey mantelets of the country ladies melting away from him fleeing from his contact he could not account for the social ban under which he appeared to lie this was the culminating incident he remembered now other slighter acts of neglect and inattention in the past which he had been too little self-conscious to observe or to piece together in a pattern of general avoidance and cold shouldering the arraignment of the woman marrable did not disturb him so much as the nervous acceptance of it by the canon mrs marrable was a shrew a local terror a person of advanced views and the author of the book in question was a friend of hers probably but canon st ledger a decent sober-minded man a man of his own stamp he saw his thin hand toying with the suspended pencil he heard again his meek milk-and-water reproof of mrs marrable's unparliamentary language he could not away with that he wandered about the garden half the night with the puppy now fully trained to be a perfect house-dog and companion 
it followed him in an orderly manner from covert to covert under the high beetling wall with the thick beds of nettles growing luxuriantly at the base once however there was a skirmish the dog grew quite excited at what must surely have been a not unusual sight for him the yellow knob of a small boy's head peering over the wall supported presumably from behind by a human japanese ladder of other small boys it was a favourite game in this neighbourhood he he they crowed and chuckled who lives here old mother brownrig and her girls he he no one ever comes out here alive the dog barked and sprang fear of his ultimately reaching them at last dislodged the grotesque cohort ensor his nerves a little shaken by this noisy onslaught of words only half heard turned and made his way back to the house it was absurd to mind children were always climbing up the other side of that wall it was nice to climb it had jutting courses of bricks halfway up and the village curiosity was provoked and stimulated by the air of quasi-mystery which adelaide chose to foster about high walls and that her rather witch-like appearance abroad always heavily medievally cloaked and motor-veiled abetted she dressed like a toadstool in the day and in the evening like a panther she strode along her step was confident her eyes abstracted her whole manner carelessly insulting no wonder the children were afraid of her he went in and saw the doctor coming out and questioned him about phyllis his anxiety was easily allayed the big girl was strong enough to resist a whole army of adverse microbes he saw the new nurse a tall thin sprig of a woman with some indication of character she was very cold and civil especially when she spoke to adelaide he thought he saw plainly that she disliked the mistress of the house already another poor adelaide he knew he was right as the days went on the two women detested each other skirmished every time they met issued cross orders and confused the other servants but the maid defeated the mistress dr hodgson meek little insignificant man that he was resisted all mrs ensor's hints and manoeuvres and finally her most palpable efforts to get rid of nurse ferrier who was on her side careful to give no positive offence or commit any domestic crime which might lead to her dismissal on other grounds than medical ones she was a capital nurse even adelaide admitted that only phyllis no longer wanted one hodgson said she did he further implied that a nurse stood between mrs ensor and all fatigue or anxiety undesirable for a woman in her state and that was the only argument adelaide dared not or did not care to gainsay the distracted woman vented her annoyance at the doctor's tactics on her husband and to punish him she would not let him see phyllis as she spent most of her time in the girl's room which opened out of her own ensor saw very little of her he found himself not very much cast down by this arrangement he was much out of sympathy with his wife a little fretted by her irritability and was glad to defer their meeting until the need for the nurse's presence which so enraged her should have passed away he wondered sometimes when that would be and thought he would like to ask the nurse but she rather sternly and with a sort of frigidity put on over and above her statutory nurse's manner passed him in the hall and on the stairs 
he began to fancy that adelaide moved by her strange taste for regulating the movements and gestures of others had bidden her to enter as little as possible into conversation with the master of the house well well he missed mary to whom in the present upheaval he could have paid a little more attention still presumably she was well adelaide had apparently carried out his expressed wishes for once and had insisted on gertrude's sending her child away for sea air he missed the daily appeal of the dark eyes set in paleness the weak gestures with her hands which mary often used in lieu of speaking as if mere movement made less stir and drew down less attention on her from the cruel powers above though her face was pale it was always clean he remembered and a queer thing he never remembered her sitting down did she ever sit down he had seen her squat he had seen her stand but he had never seen her sit except that first day in the motor-car when the dark fur cap on her head and the dark fur up to her chin had made her look almost a lady she was dressed exactly like phyllis then he remembered strange monitory caprice of adelaide's an instance of her sheer love of power to raise and then to degrade no man could do such a thing except perhaps some savage asiatic king one in whom caprice remained the only lust left to satisfy he did not care to affront such scenes as he had gone through at beverley any more and he took his name off the committee he stayed at home and spent his dreary uneventful time mostly in wandering about the house followed by the dog who had grown attached to him it generally lay down at his feet in the hall while he sat on one of the yellow chairs reading papers endlessly smoking far more than was good for him thus he caught the doctor on his way through the outer hall to see phyllis the doctor generally nodded kindly but did not stop there was nothing to say about phyllis she was going on well and adelaide did not expect to be confined for a couple of months or so the nurse flitted by on her screw soles going up and down stairs and taking no notice of the solitary man he never saw gertrude at all he was thinking seriously of going away from high walls for a time until phyllis was quite well and mary had come back and he had got as far as the handling of bradshaw and the turning of the page marked continental trains when one day the nurse chose suddenly to leave the orbit in which she generally travelled between the red baize door into the servants quarters and the staircase that led up into phyllis's sick-room and came straight up to waldensor the deflection of the moon from her course could not have surprised him more she spoke i beg your pardon sir but have i your permission to take dr hodgson to see mary her eyes drooped and seemed to look down both sides of her nose with her white cap like a frontlet her brown hair fluffed out in ascetic waves over her forehead she was not altogether an unprepossessing woman she was looking down at him her lips were coldly pursed and ensor felt just as he had felt in the beverley committee room certainly nurse he stammered but mary is she home she is at home sir and in my opinion very unwell what is the matter with her i want to know mary is a special pet of mine 
the lame absurd words came broken from his lips he was not thinking of what he was saying he was overwhelmed by an avalanche of doubts adelaide had lied to him hasn't mary been away at all he stammered the nurse raised her eyes and gave him one straight winged glance she had strong black eyebrows that met across her nose and a pout that was determined she may have been not that i know of her nose was in the air will you see her sir she ended more kindly perhaps you would like to know how she is for yourself yes he replied i should indeed but i understood she had been sent away to the sea for her health let us go i don't know where she sleeps when she is at home you shall see sir if you will come with me her calmness was only a mask ensor felt her quiet words covered an indignation that nearly broke through her professional reserve she was boiling over with rage she walked through the red baize door with an assured step never turning or looking round at the shamefaced man who followed her with humble downcast head his morning paper still crumpled up in his hand the red baize door marked the transition between the oldest and most modern parts of the house ensor had never been up the second and original staircase which led to the attics and it was these that nurse ferrier now proceeded to mount it was rather dark everywhere for a heavy shower was impending the first few drops of which had fallen before they left the part of the house where the windows were bigger the stairs were uncarpeted low and uneven they led up to wide emaciated corridors whose panelling was worm-eaten pale with age and desuetude low doors plumb in the wall opened into many rooms at each of which in turn ensor expected the nurse to stop and enter another flight of stairs leading to just such another corridor the air was faint it seemed to have been sealed for centuries ensor protested asked some sort of question where were they going into the attic where mary sleeps alone the nurse answered her manner was more kindly now a child to sleep all this way from everybody he murmured she nodded but did not turn they reached a short flight of five steps built in ensor was quite in the dark until the nurse pushed open a door at the head of the stairs and they emerged into the twilight of a large bare attic when his eyes grew accustomed to the light he realized that it occupied the whole top of the house give me your hand sir the nurse said quite gently you may get a shock mary's here or was yesterday the attic was like the aisle of a church with chapels on both sides a wide window at the very end allowed a milky track of light to fall along the pale decayed flooring of the middle there were small dormer windows in the embrasures formed by old roughly joined beams filled in with whitewashed lath and plaster each was like a little room shut off towards the centre the flooring was rotted away the jagged boards seemed to meet in a pattern of interwoven flanges they walked along it carefully up to the very end and ensor saw the wide stretch of rolling country out of the big window the nurse went along it carefully peering into each alcove she seemed puzzled it was this one she said at last 
It's so dark with the rain I can hardly see, but I was up here yesterday and got scolded for it. Here she is. He stopped. His legs almost refused to move. The child was lying on a large, thin mattress just at his feet. A shawl with ragged fringe covered her, and the dull, stained tick of the mattress showed beyond it. There seemed to be no bed linen, and the child's nightdress, which might have been originally of pink flannel, was of a curious, ingrained, dull colour. Ensor started and felt sick. "'Ah, oh, sir, you see?' the nurse said and stopped. She bent down. "'Mary!' She had soft tones as well as harsh ones. The child, who appeared to be dozing, opened her eyes and turned them up at her visitors. She still had her ridiculous top-knots straining the hair from her forehead, and the rest of it was matted on her face. Her hand lay open on the shawl, the other was under her cheek. She may have been aware of them. She did not look at these people. Slowly her eyes closed again, and she lay quiet, a grey patch on the dark background of the pallet. "'Mary,' the nurse said again, "'here's Mr. Ensor to see you. "'Take her up, sir,' she bade commandingly. Ensor knelt down and lifted the upper part of the wretched, filthy little body, half out of her bed, onto one of his knees. As he handled her, he had the sensation of her dry, harsh skin, and it reminded him of parchment. She coughed as he unavoidably jerked her in lifting. By his prompt obedience to her request, he had rehabilitated himself into the nurse's opinion, as she showed by the more familiar tone of her next speech. "'Did you ever see such a disreputable nightdress, and such a hole to let a child sleep in?' She went on scolding, and Ensor realized that her abuse was directed at Adelaide, yet it seemed an impossible thing to answer her. She blamed the doers of this deed, but in a strain so incommensurate with the depth of the painful emotions raised in him by the sight of the child's condition. Seeing, however, that he was feeling as he should feel, she respected his wretchedness and spoke gently. She's been alone so all night. But will you stay with her, sir, while I fetch the doctor? It's just on his time for coming. I may catch him before Mrs. Ensor sees him. She crept away. Ensor heard her gently close the attic door. There was silence, and her heels on the stair, tapping, retreating. Left alone in the attic with a dying child across his knee, the man tried frantically to collect his thoughts. Beyond a little dry, patient cough, made as it were of ashes and dust, which racked her now and then, Mary lay quite still across his knees. He changed his position, and now he sat on the floor beside the mattress. His eyes grew accustomed to the lighting of this place, and he saw that there was a small window in each embrasure and the one opposite him on the other side of the house had panes. That, immediately over Mary's bed, was open to the air. The glass had evidently been cracked and had fallen out, leaving jagged pieces in the frame. From one of these there depended the fragments of a checked cotton duster, stuffed in there by someone to ward off, more or less, the draught. End of section 15